The Melting Pot. Hosted by Dominic Munkas. Hello, this is Dominic Monkhouse. Welcome to The Melting Pot, the podcast where I get to chat to entrepreneurs and business leaders about their journey, their challenges, and how they see the future. Today I'm joined by Jack Kreindler, who was originally, after qualifying at medical school, an emergency physician, but has spent certainly the best part of his life working as a tech entrepreneur. He now specializes in high altitude medicine. He looks at how he can take the learnings from high altitude medicine and apply those to other very sick patients, particularly cancer patients. And he also talks to me about artificial intelligence and the impact that that's having on the medicine he and other doctors practice. My name is Dr. Jack Kreindler. I am a doctor and a medical technology entrepreneur. I've been practicing as a physician for two decades and uh, practicing as a geek professionally for three decades. I've been working uh, in the area of medical technology and uh, now more latterly in the use of AI for helping doctors make better earlier decisions in, in parallel with building my medical institute called the Center for Health and Human Performance, where we use human performance science, normally only applied for elite athletes, to help really sick people get better outcomes. So kind of like two lives, really, in a way, I've been leading for the last, <laughs> last 30 years. What's the split between those two? Is it is it fifty fifty, or you, did you is one of those more all consuming than the other? I suppose my my life is split into three halves. Because I mean, it seems like <laughs> it's that amount of time. So yeah, a third a third of my time is in clinical practice at my institute, and uh, my my specialty is in high altitude physiology and extreme conditions medicine. A third of our clients are elite athletes. A third are people like you and me, Dom, who want to run circles around people half our age. And, uh, and a third are, um, you know, you're kind of very, very sick cancer patients normally, who they need to be treated like athletes, actually, to get the best possible outcomes in very, very tricky situations. The, the, the other two thirds of my life are split between tech and communication. So developing or helping uh, other entrepreneurs develop the future of medicine, and then getting the message out there. Where do you spend the three halves of your life? Uh, my, my institute's in London, and uh, obviously we have a lot of international clients, but essentially it's, uh, it's a London-based institute, so that's where we do medical stuff. Now, 50 of us working there, so have many more hands who are much cleverer and harder working than I am <laughs> to, uh, to actually run the show. And uh, it, the, the communications work and the technology work is really just split basically between Europe and America. So a lot of the technology projects are really I started out in California, reason being that, you know, it's quite easy to raise money out there for bright ideas and easy to, to find the right kind of engineers and creative folk. The, the communications work is actually really very international. I would say that the, the best creative work that I've seen anywhere in the world really has come from the UK, frankly. And I, I chose to, to join the board of a division of, of, of Havas called Have Us Links, based in Manchester in London. Funnily enough, just uh, last week, we won um, Healthcare Creative Agency of the Year at the Oscars for, for, for the creative world uh, at Can Lions. So doing well on that front, that's uh, essentially based in the UK, uh, but our work is for clients, big biopharma clients and biotechnology startups alike uh, throughout the whole world. What was the piece of work you won you won an Oscar for? Well, we won a number, we won a number of uh, awards, but uh, essentially the, 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 the gold medal, as it were, 
for the industry is best agency of the year, healthcare creative agency of the year. And that is a result of all the campaigns, not just ads, but uh, public health campaigns, launch campaigns for breakthrough biopharma products, you know, public health awareness campaigns for for patient advocacy and so on and it's the it's the it's the sum total of all of the votes that you get across all of your work for the whole year that wins you that accolade so uh, it wasn't just about one thing it was about lots but some of the features in there were uh, in, included uh, an amazing campaign for uh, organ donation called speed donating which was a wonderful little piece about how people who uh, you, you know, currently sort of searching for matches, go to speed dating things. And it was a beautiful little parody on, on speed donating. And the whole point was like, you know, what if finding a match was actually a matter of life and death? And, you know, uh-huh. the fact that 16 people a day, including today, will die just because we don't connect the, the dots that are so easy to connect today between the people that are desperate for organs and people that, you know, willing to donate them uh, when they die. So it's, you know, it's really wonderful, really, really wonderful work. It's not just about helping big biopharma clients make a lot of money. It's about breaking new ground. And I think one of the things I've learned through technology, and this might be relevant to, to the listeners, is, you know, it's not just about invention and regulation and, and so on. It's actually about communication. A whole lot about what we do in med tech, at least, is is down to how quickly we can get widespread trust and adoption. And that is not about the tech. It is actually purely about education and communication around brilliant, groundbreaking new ideas. I've got a question I want to ask you about that communication, but going back to the organ donation, there is supply, but it's just we're not connecting the supply to the to the necessary recipient. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's like in such a connected world where we can serendipitously bump across, uh, you know, bump into somebody say hey you know there's a really good friend of yours you haven't seen for a couple of years in that restaurant next door I mean these sorts of these sorts of incredible connections can be made Uh, and yet you know the supply and demand of who's willing to give their organs of the right type and who badly needs it in order to survive and live to fight another day just incredible how despite all of our technology that very simple fact doesn't exist and this is one of the things which I think is really important in entrepreneurship is to sort of uh, recognize that there are some really high impact things that low hanging fruit out there that with all our digital inventions and and the platforms that are available out there we're still not seeing i suppose that's uh, that's you know one of the key points and these things are maybe not as financially lucrative but they're certainly a matter of life and death and it's something quite close to my heart and i was very pleased to be engaged with that is that at the heart of why that problem hasn't been solved that that you wouldn't be able to make money from solving that problem Sadly, yes. I think that there are a great deal of high-impact problems that are not particularly financially rewarding. Certainly, there's no money in the exchange of organs, at least not in <laughs> not in ethically-oriented organisations and countries. But you know, it's there. There are there are still also plenty of things that drive people towards a huge impact in human health and disease that will you know, clearly be uh, high value to, to, to health care organizations, biopharma companies, you know, the people that pay for healthcare, individual patients included, as well as insurance companies. So there's, there's a lot of these things out there, but it's, I, I think it's the, the, the magic really at the moment is finding those things that uh, entrepreneurs can really get their teeth into that have extremely high impact, but also have um, a huge value add financially, because that, of course, drives the most sort of 
entrepreneurial activity and ambition. But it's, you know, I think it's important um, that we also uh, use what we, what skills we have to address some of these real kind of, you know, less less lucrative, but but most, you know, sort of life uh, life saving and limb saving. Uh, opportunities that there are out there There's lots and lots that we can do going back to the point you made about communication is that is the communication of these things to patients or to doctors so that particular campaign was was more to individual patients it was to recruit them uh, to become donators donators of of data and donators of themselves as they basically get them to sign up to 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 be donors yeah, so so it was a purely it was a purely public health campaign that one. But um, well, I mean, more broadly, do you think that communication efforts to new therapies, uh, or even just making sure that the most effective therapy is being uh, prescribed by doctors, is is there a communication challenge with? I mean, do- what, doctors what, what, being up to date. Yeah, it's, it's things are changing incredibly rapidly. I mean, what, what, if I if I was a cancer specialist today and I was fully up to date as of yesterday, you know, by 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 midday, I'd probably be out of date in a lot of ways. You know, what a lot of people don't realize, if you spend a billion dollars getting a drug to market, you then have to spend another billion dollars to to actually make that widespread practice. And it takes another, you know, five, 10 years. And so really how how to develop trust amongst the community of, you know, really quite reserved and cautious uh, professionals is, is one of the one of the grand challenges really in, in, in improving healthcare and, and making some of these new breakthrough therapies, for instance, you know, some of the immunotherapies in cancer treatment, for instance, are phenomenally hard to get hold of, not because they don't exist, it's because of the trust and the education that the professionals have around uh, something that's new. And if you think about it, one of the disadvantages with everything being connected and open and, uh, and available is that everything is now accessible to the patient that the physician might not even have heard about it and the patient's already read 20 papers about it. You know, how do you contend with a world where instead of the science going to the medics, going down to the patients and then eventually patient advocacy groups, how about flipping that the other way around where the science goes to the patient, goes to the advocacy, group, advocacy groups, goes to the doctor? It's, <laughs> it's, it's super interesting. I mean, I, I find that very phenomenon uh, probably more disruptive um, than any anything that's happened in in any industry that I can think of to date. And do you see that in your own practice? Yeah, you do know, people turn up. We, do we people have, turn up to you incredibly well informed. Yeah, I have my I have my my regular um, I, you know not even consultations. I would call them sort of lessons that I <laughs> that I that I get that I get taught by patients coming in and saying, Hey, have you heard of this? And you know, dumping that extremely scary set of printouts of papers that they've clearly read and researched incredibly resourcefully and you know the, 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 the how that's changed my practice is that I truly believe that medical consultation needs to move towards um, a two-way you know like a real traditional consultancy where it's about it's about working together with the person asking you the questions and trying to help them navigate their way through myriad options as, as opposed to pretending that you actually know all the answers which is kind of what it used to be 20 years ago. And, and, and since the world of connectivity has changed our en- entire world, I, I, I think the attitudes of, of physicians and their relationships with patients and their loved ones and caregivers has to really change and, and, and kind of become a little bit more like, I suppose, how it's become with publishing. I mean, if you think about it, 
Um, I was sitting next to Jimmy Wales the other day. That was a remarkable thing. Just happened to be sitting next to him at dinner. And you know, just think about the way that knowledge is now curated by the people that live in the world, as opposed to the editors and the, and the authors um, who essentially you know, dictate the canon of what is known and not known. That, that's a phenomenon that's happening in medicine as well. It's not just about authorities that dictate what it is that you know, is truth. It's actually all of us. It's a, it's, a, it's a phenomenal time and a very, very disruptive to the way that we think about practice in medicine. When you were back at the beginning of your, your practice, you were working in emergency medicine? Yeah. And so why did you decide that that wasn't what you wanted to do? Talking of Jimmy and Wikipedia, um, I actually had an interesting conversation. Throughout medical school, I was, in fact, uh, paying my way and earning money uh, by moonlighting to Douglas Adams working on what really is regarded as the first Wikipedia, the Hitchhiker's uh-huh. Guide Online. Um, so the, Jimmy was quite impressed to find out that uh, his hero, Douglas Adams, was absolutely uh, amazed and, and pleased that Wikipedia came into existence a few years after uh, we were working on h2g2.com, Hitchhiker's Guide Online. But yeah, I, it was working with Douglas and realizing that the way in which information and truth was published and made accessible to everyone instantly. That was really going to change the whole way in which we practice medicine as doctors and receive medicine um, as patients, or at least very, very least what we told patients as doctors and what we were able to know of medicine and our options as patients. Even if prescription didn't change, then at least the knowledge around it would. And and that really was the, the, the starting point of, of why I moved from emergency medicine into Starting my in, in you know in the Whittington Hospital in, in London and started my first uh, venture-backed startup, which was called Encyclomedica, which really was you know about curating information from different sources and really empowering and enabling patients to understand a myriad of, of different common conditions and some rare ones uh, and what was basic treatment and what was you know going to be what was going to be available to them in a few years' time. And, uh, you know, that was uh, that became V-Life, which sold to Cigna in 2006 and really started uh, me on my journey of sort of medical informatics and med tech uh, startups. So, so, yeah, I guess it was I guess it was the inspiration of Douglas, the hitchhiker's guide, the concept that knowledge about life, the universe and everything uh, would not just be written by a few editors out there, but be written by all of us, in fact, um, that helped me to spread my wings and, uh, and, and depart from the, the sort of the usual career of becoming a consultant in emergency medicine. Now you're, you, I suppose you're back helping with artificial intelligence. Some doctors make better decisions. Yeah, it's been an interesting 10 years now. I mean, it's, it's been it's 2007 since we started the Centre for Health and Human Performance. Working with athletes, you see that effectively everyone is an N of one case, you know, everyone is deeply profiled and assessed and, and the goals and the targets are very, very specific to each individual athlete. And you realize that effectively to, to either fix an athlete or to help them achieve a specific goal, you do have a kind of a, a broad framework of science and, and good practice and experience, but, but actually everything is very individual. And the only way that you can really measure what you're doing is by having lots and lots of data and adapting persisting and pivoting if you want to use a a software engineering parlance in order to in order to adjust and make sure that that whatever you're doing is achieving its goals and we've been doing this for decades and decades in elite sport but why haven't we been doing this in medicine and 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 it turns out that with with all the new sort of data sources that we can get 
um, the high frequency biomarkers, physiological testing um, that we now have in medicine. We, we need more than just the human brain that sees a patient one hour a year to be able to help make the best paths and, and treatment decisions that, that we can. And we call that AI now. I mean, it's a pretty specific phrase term for a, for, for, for a broad number of things. But how we can use data and the power to process those data uh, in new ways for patients is something which is quite extraordinary. So it basically, my love of wanting to help doctors make better decisions from more data, from ever more rich sources like biosensors, new molecular profiling tools, and so on, with the power of AI, is, uh, was actually born as a result of seeing how we do things with, with elite athletes. You said you'd, you'd taken some of that learning and taken that into the care of cancer patients. Yeah, that's right. Is that the same as AI or is, that, are you, are you, yeah. is it different learning? So, I mean, there's a few things we've done with, with cancer patients. I mean, uh, one, of, one of the projects which we started as a spin-out of my institute in London uh, was how do we use some of these biosensors that kind of are replacing some of the very big expensive kit um, that you know, sits in our lab and is now becoming like stuff you can wear on your wrist and so on. How can we use that to kind of early predict whether, let's say, some of the chemotherapy treatments or other treatments that we're giving very sick cancer patients, um, are, are they going to come crashing into hospital? Are they really well? Are they actually uh, you know, subtly deteriorating in ways that might end them up you know, either spending lots of time in intensive care or you know, not being able to go to work and so on. So it's one of like early pattern detection from physiological data you get from biosensors, wearables and so forth uh, was one of the projects which we started. It's called Sentry in that project. And that was the first FDA approved system uh, in the world that didn't require the FDA to scrutinize the machine learning based suggestions that were predictive of people getting really sick. Very subtle signs things that normal, normally people like me wouldn't be able to see, the AI can see in the patterns and then can throw up kind of, you know, warnings of, hey, this patient in five days time, I know you can't see it, is going to be coming into hospital. They've just had chemo and we suggest you sort of, you know, act early. So that's one, that's one example of a, of a system that we built. Another one which I think is really marvellous is the ability to, to use computer vision to look through hundreds of thousands of CT scans and MRI scans to be able to tell radiologists whether it's worth sticking an expensive, dangerous needle into that funny-looking shadow on your lung, for instance. It turns out that, it turns out that we are very cautious, and we, we usually 97 times out of 100 will stick a needle into something, which is a shadow on the lung or wherever it might else be in the body. And it, only, it turns out that we only need to do that about 25% of the time with quite astonishing accuracy using deep learning as a specific AI technique. We have shown that we can avoid amazing numbers of unnecessary procedures for people who are having screening. And also, as a result of that, people who would otherwise not be followed up because their images look relatively clear, again, deep pattern detection can tell that you know, we've got to keep a much closer eye on that patient, even though they look all right. So picking up stuff that otherwise would be missed. But more importantly, why the heck do you have to put somebody at such risk and spend so much money when you don't need to, to investigate things that, you know, really are not uh, needed to be prodded or poked or biopsied at that time. But what's even more interesting than that, Dom, I think, is something that's happened over the last, literally last few months. And that's the emergence of these um, remarkable new ways 
of detecting uh, using circulating tumor DNA in the blood and various other things like what we call volatile organic compounds. I won't bore you with what all these things are, but you know, instead of having to biopsy people, instead of having to uh, take lots of invasive tests from people and image them the whole time, what we can do is just take simple blood tests and urine tests and start to see whether you've either got cancer or not, um, or whether the treatment's working or not. And that's, that's utterly remarkable. It, it involves a lot of computation. It involves a lot of research still. But I think that that is, for me, the most remarkable new frontier in cancer. And that is the ability for us to use much more sophisticated diagnostics, really understand tumors far better than we ever did before. Not treat it by location or by what it looks like under the microscope, but really for what pathways have all gone wrong. And then to introduce adaptive combinations of therapies and to see whether they're working in real time. That is a, a complete change in the way that we think about research and practice, but where people have no hope, it provides an enormous amount of uh, opportunity, learning, and obviously hope for those people who've got really complex diseases that aren't well treated today by standard of care. So it's a, it's a, real, it's, it's a real turning point, I think, right now. And something which obviously you may well have heard about what's going on with the UK Brain Cancer Mission, which was started by Tessa Jow, um, who I helped look after. Sadly, she died a few weeks ago, as you know, but started you know, this real movement towards gaining access or helping the whole nation and all people to gain access to these kinds of technologies. I read an article in the last couple of days about basically heating something up in the brain and being able to kill small numbers of cells very, very, yeah. very, very specifically. And it feels much more science fiction and Star Trek than maybe yeah. drilling a hole in your head. Where did your drive to get into high altitude medicine come from? Because that's, that's a sort of a niche of a niche of a niche, isn't it? <laughs> I love mountains and I love medicine. I think it's really simple. You know, uh, what, better, what better a place to kind of practice in, in an environment you love? But, you know, I think high altitude medicine has taught me a lot of things. It's taught me a little bit like as an entrepreneur, you're, you're kind of on your own. You don't have as many resources. It's a dangerous place. You constantly have to look around you to see what's going on. You cannot do it without support of your, you know, a good team. And so there's kind of a general analogy or at least a parallel to, to my entrepreneurial and tech life. It just resonated with me. The, the two worlds are kind of, kind of like high risk world of, entrepreneurship and the, the high-risk world of, of uh, practicing medicine in the mountains you know kind of go very much hand in hand I think I was born I was born like this and this is my wiring and I, I can't imagine I can't imagine doing a, a medical desk job I think I would <laughs> I don't think it would kind of resonate with me uh, equally I don't think I would be able to live without that desire to sort of change and evolve and, and, and disrupt the way we do things using technology and so, so I know it sounds peculiar, but the, the two actually are, are very much kind of aligned to, to, to how I sort of am wired. And so do you, you go on high altitude expeditions and support the team to keep them well whilst they're attempting to climb or walk or conquer something? Is that? Yeah. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of world. It's preparing people. It's helping get the right medical support when they're out on the hill. And it's also helping people recover and, you know, because injuries happen. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a combination of those things. But really, the, the, the heart of high altitude medicine and physiology is understanding what happens to bodies when they're in extreme circumstances. The, the real crux of what we do is apply the science of extreme conditions, physiology, uh, high altitude being, you know, a classic version of that. And to, to help other people at sea level. 
So, you know, if you're going through cancer and chemo and radio and all these other things, or if you've had a really, really bad infection, you've lost a lot of weight, you need to recover, or if you've you know, had a major injury or accident or something, those are all conditions where your body's in an extreme state, just like if you were climbing Everest. And what's really fascinating is the research you do on how, who survives or who gets to climb to the top of Everest or not is actually a fantastic basis for understanding how to help people recover, avoid illness, survive things they otherwise wouldn't survive here on here at sea level so it's not just about climbing mountains Dom. do not do not be fooled <laughs> it's, uh, it's not just, it's not just a, a specialty for uh, you know helping people uh, climb to their to, to their once in a lifetime summit going back to artificial intelligence for doctors one of the things you said earlier was that they're quite doctors are conservative in their nature generally and and I know from my own time, I spent some time uh, working for a software manufacturer who made software for, for GP surgeries, mm. and we implemented nice guidelines and showed people what yeah. percentage of their prescribing was generic. And, and even then, it, it seemed difficult to get people, you know, there was a, intellectually, they could say, yes, we should be doing the right thing. And, and intellectually, if we followed these guidelines, it would be cheaper and people would have better outcomes. And yet somehow adoption was slow. And I, and I remember it seemed to me that there was a, something about being a doctor and being conservative is a good thing. And yet here you are trying to get people to change their behavior, artificial intelligence. A machine is suggesting that some course of therapy or, or things you should look at. And, and how are you finding acceptance of that? Is it some people are, are open to it and, and others aren't? Is there, a, is there a particular type of doctor? Is it, is it age? Is it location? You should watch a little TED talk that I, I, I did for, in Glasgow a few weeks ago. It's called Crossing the Incurable right. Sea. It, talk, it talks to this very point. The, the, the podcast is, is all about cancer. And you see, a lot, of, a lot of the problems that we've now been left with after having you know, really done very, very well in managing and treating and sometimes even curing more simple problems uh, whether it's you know a worn out hip or whether it's a heart valve, but those are relatively simple things. You know, you you have a you have a problem. It has a single key issue that you can fix. You know, like replacing the insulin that you've lost because you've, your pancreas is packed in, or you know, giving yourself that that anti-malarial because of that parasite that you've that you've picked up. We've been left with a lot of these much more complex diseases. Those are the ones that really are becoming the the pandemics. And um, they are you know. The more complex cancers, the diseases of aging, and they are really not simple problems. They are complex systems biology problems that really, we, if you look historically at how we've studied them, how much money, time, and brain power we, we've spent in our very brilliant research institutions to actually understand and, and tackle some of these diseases, we, we're heading heading up towards taller and taller barriers because systems biology problems are kind of beyond the understanding of any single human brain it's not one or two interacting problems in a in a, in a chain of events it's a multi-causal systems biology network effect which is almost as hard to understand as life is itself and so in order to in order to really more deeply understand these problems and have an, even a chance at, at, at attacking them you need to you do need to have a different approach standard model of medical science of you know testing a versus b when actually what you've got is 20 or 50 or maybe 200 problems interacting with each other at the same time you're very very unlikely to see you know major 
change in your in the success of your therapies mm-hmm. over time. It will take a very, very, very long time to use the A versus B good gold standard medical science research approach to cracking some of these hard systems biology problems using much more sort of sophisticated multi-omics deep molecular profiling all of those lovely juicy new things that used to cost billions and now cost tens of dollars to do presents us an opportunity to be able to understand disease at a much more molecular level but all the pathways and interactions involved in, in those are, are actually very similar to the kind of net systems, networks, emergent, weird, spooky effects that you might see in a social graph or an advertising campaign or a political campaign or um, the kinds of things that, you know, the stock market, for instance, is a highly complex interacting web of causes and effects and how you interact and influence the, the outcomes requires more than a single human brain at any one time. Now, it takes a lot for a doctor that's been trained in a certain way of thinking to understand that. But forget, forgetting how doctors have been trained, if you, if you ask a mathematician or an engineer how to solve a, a complex systems net, net, in a network effect problem, they wouldn't use medical science alone. That They would use data science and different types of mathematics and study in order to try and crack those problems. And so that's what we're saying, really, is like, it's not that, you know, hey, what you're doing was wrong. It's just that the shape of medicine, the demographic of, of disease, the aging population, and the fact that we are much more confronted now by much more complicated systems biology problems means that we have to take a, a suitable approach to try and address those problems. And that means taking more risk. Change means risk. We have a, an entire profession that's used to doing things one way, the science is done one way, the way that we know what's working and what's not what's safe and what's not is well understood and established and to change that paradigm and to do things like we would would in aviation for instance where every single flight is pre-planned according to the weather and the size of the aircraft and the number of number of passengers that you're carrying the exact route that you're going and the fact that you know as we fly an airplane we're adjusting in real time according to the environment around us and telling the plane behind that and the plane behind that what what is going on and, and, and then taking millions of flights and helping improve our routes and reduce injuries and accidents you know, in real time. It's very different. We don't do that in medicine today. We do it in every other industry, but not medicine. Does that mean it's going to be easy? No, it, it's going to be hard. It's a mindset change. It comes back to the reason why I dedicate a lot of my time to education and communication, because in fact, it's not about inventing new drugs. It, in fact, it's not really about inventing new maths and new AI and new algorithms. It's about understanding that the very nature of how we study and practice medicine as as it becomes more complex it needs to it needs to be met with the right tools oh fascinating um you're a busy fella safe with your with your three halves of your life what have you learned about about how to cope what personal things tips could you pass on around burning the candle at three ends if you live your life yes and with small children exactly i've got a little one who's four and i've got you know um I, i've got a family and friends and important projects and as well as all of the uh, you know the other work i think i'm at a slight advantage because i actually you know know the science of this stuff and I, I do practice what i preach i guess the only reason why some of these athletes politicians executives and so on that we look after survive and thrive as well as you know how we get uh, cancer patients and so on to do much better than they otherwise would not not through miracle new drugs but through through basically you know the principles of, of physiology and, and, and elite sport is by looking after the fundamentals and then some hacking i think those are the two main categories 
the fundamentals are you absolutely have to protect your sleep, especially if you're traveling a lot. Um, that, you know, without that, that is the single biggest thing that can really screw you up, both short term and long term. From a nutritional perspective, you've got to know what to eat, when to eat, when not to eat. I think it's a very, very important. Smart nutrition is really important. Uh, making sure that you remind your body what it used to be when it was young, that's called exercise. And uh, you know, making that smart and short and to be able to fit that in, irrespective of where you're traveling, hotel rooms, home, you know, is, is fundamentally important. And then having the right headspace. It is incredibly easy to get bogged down, stressed. Being able to have an attitude of, you know, mindfulness and that sort of classic headspace kind of look at the world is absolutely essential as the four key pillars. And then obviously sort of, you know, where you need medicine, where you need external agents, where you need to hack in order to, you know, make sure you don't crash a car when you're land in Los Angeles, making sure that your body clock resynchronizes when you should be wide, you know, wide awake and you're falling asleep all the other way around. Um, you know, those are the sorts of things where nutraceutical and maybe even prescription things can help. Just making sure that all of the things that have gone wrong that you can't fix through lifestyle and behavior um, are properly and well managed using the right kind of you know, pharmaceutical approach uh, that you'll get prescribed by any good clinician. But those are all the things that will help us live and thrive into our 80s. And not just vanity, it's necessity. People like you and me, Dom, you know, we have families. We can't afford to retire at the age of whatever. We want to be working and contributing to our economies and our, and our own families. Uh, well past what we were designed to do or what the pension schemes for the, <laughs> for the country were uh, you know had intended for us so this stuff as i say is not anymore just vanity it's necessity so getting it right is incredibly important I, I would i would not be able to be even vaguely coherent i don't think speaking on the phone today with you after the last four weeks of what i've been doing without some of those things in place <laughs> are there any books that you would recommend that people should read either to pick up on more detail around any of those points or more generally yeah. some of the things that you've learned along the way that you think i wish i'd read that sooner or everyone should read this a really good new book which i really like is called genius foods which was co-authored by a great friend of mine called dr paul growell a young chap well known for going from 130 kilograms down to 80 by just using good physiology, which is a fine example of the kind of stuff that we do. That's a really, really fantastic book. I like that very, very much. In terms of like how to sort of look to the future and see where medicine's going, I think The Creative Destruction of Medicine by Eric Topol is an interesting book if you're interested in you know, how health tech, biosensors, AI, and so on is going to disrupt the profession. And I think just in general, kind of thing that we were talking about with regards to where computation AI and complex problems and how we're going to solve them. I think Evolving Ourselves by Juan Enriquez or Max Tegmark's new book, uh, Human 3.0. Some people like Sapiens and the follow-up Homo Deus by um, Yuval Noah Harari. I think those are, those are a fantastic set of books for people that are interested in this kind of domain. Fantastic timely for people to uh, read on holiday. Um, mm. And lastly, one question. If you were to go back in time, What's the one thing that you would have done differently? Yeah, interesting point. From an entrepreneurship perspective, I think that I would have probably been wiser with respect to sort of equity and ownership. Understanding how venture works, I think, is something which I learned the hard way. I was probably one of the first sort of practicing physicians who are in kind of full-time medical mode, but also in the kind of startup mode at the same time. So I think building really good long-term equity 
property structures and getting the right kind of investment at the right time is something that I, I think today is an awful lot easier. So it's, it's probably a moot point now. But that's something which, you know, way back when I, I think I probably would have done better. It's, it's, an eternal, it's, it's, it's an eternal problem. Raising money, then owing that money is, is clearly something that challenges people in startup a lot. But I think it's getting easier for people in med tech. The other thing I think I would say is just, you know, from a medical perspective, is I would have probably done more research at the same time as doing practice. I think it's, it probably wouldn't, I would have had to created four halves of my life rather than three <laughs> to be able to do it. But I, I think that maybe having even more faith in the fact that data, information, connectivity, and machine intelligence or AI and, and, and the fact that that was going to become a really hot area of, of, of academic research, I think I probably would have studied that more. But again, it was almost impossible back then to even have uh, found an institute to, to do some of that work in. So, you know, these are sort of, you know, with the power of the retrospectoscope, I would say, but I would definitely have liked to have done those two things perhaps a little bit better. Jack, thank you very much indeed for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks, Don. Thank you for listening to the Melting Pot podcast. Please, we're now on iTunes. Give us some feedback and on Stitcher and SoundCloud. That'd be fantastic. And sign up to the newsletter over on medium.com slash foundry media. You can sign up for the weekly newsletter and read the blog. Till next time. Goodbye. The Melting Pot was hosted by Dominic Monkhouse. And you can find out more about Dom on LinkedIn, just search for Dominic Monkhouse or his companies, Foundry Media or Foundry 51.